Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, we begin in verse 10. If, um, if you hear me uh, refer to Paul as the author, okay, um, you don't have to be dogmatic in agreeing with me on that. It's an area of some controversy as to who the author of this epistle actually is, since that author is nowhere identified. But I, I think you may discover as we read this passage that the argument for Paul being the author, I think, is uh, quite clear, especially here at the end of the epistle. So uh, if you don't think Paul wrote it, bear with me. If you hear me make reference to him being the author, uh, the most important thing to note is that it is inspired of God and that ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who is the author of this epistle. So in verse 10, we read, we have an altar. And let me pause here long enough just to point out that this altar is none other than Christ himself. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Let me pause there just long enough to say uh, this is a verse that ought to strike fear in every minister of the gospel. And I suppose in a sense it ought to strike fear in everyone uh, under the minister of the gospel. It is a frightful thing uh, to think that I will be called to account for the way I minister to souls but you'll notice also that it is in your best interest that I be able to do this with joy. Uh, otherwise, that is not profitable for you. So, um, a fearful statement, uh, you know, that uh, should strike uh, uh, a note of uh, humility uh, in all our hearts. Verse 18, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention to verse 20 from the portion we just read. Just that phrase at the very end of the verse, you'll notice that mention is made of the blood of the everlasting covenant. The blood of the everlasting covenant. That term covenant is a large term in the Bible. It it can be an intimidating term uh, if you're not careful. When I come across that term, I think the best way to think of it is to think on the gospel, the covenant and the gospel, thinking on the gospel in terms of a contract, so to speak. A contract between God the Father with God the Son and the Holy Spirit. The blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, as I said a moment ago, the Hebrews that are addressed in this epistle were on the brink of giving up on Christ and giving up on Christianity. An immense amount of pressure being put on them by their fellow countrymen. The author of this epistle, therefore, warns them with very solemn warnings. Warnings, in fact, that are so solemn that it has led some throughout the course of church history to mistakenly believe that it's actually possible for a person to lose his salvation. Listen to these words from chapter 6 and verse 4. This is what creates that impression now of a person losing his salvation, where the author says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For those that argue based on this text that a man may lose his salvation, well, the reader needs to follow the argument completely through by acknowledging that if a man does manage to lose his salvation, then, according to these verses, it's impossible for him to ever gain it back. I believe, however, that the whole matter is clarified when the author says a few verses later, in chapter 6, verse 9, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. 
Paul did not actually think they were going to lose their salvation. He was persuaded better things of them and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Do you understand what he's saying there? Even though I am thus speaking in a matter that would suggest that if you lose your salvation, you'll never gain it back again, I'm persuaded better things of you. He did not honestly think that the people he was addressing would fall into that category. He's dealing with them hypothetically, you could say. And the author then of the epistle is hedging the faltering Christians in by issuing solemn warnings on the one hand, but he's also hedging them in by placing a strong emphasis throughout this epistle on the superiority of Christ. Indeed, I think you could take that and call that the theme of the entire letter, the superiority of Christ. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than the Levitical priesthood, and his sacrifice is certainly greater than all of those Old Testament animal sacrifices. Here is an epistle, then, that is peculiarly designed to draw back to Christ those that were wavering in their faith, and it can certainly function to encourage those that are facing great trials and afflictions. Because it is so Christ-centered, it also serves well for the people of God when they meet around the Lord's table, like what we're doing this morning. The epistle closes with a benediction that can serve to encourage us in the remembrance of Christ as well as stir our hearts to greater service to Christ, as well as help us keep our aim in all that we do toward the glory of Christ. In analyzing verses 20 and 21, would you note that if we convert the statements to a simple sentence by noting only the subject of the sentence as well as the main verb in the sentence, then the sentence would read very simply like this. Now, the God of peace make you perfect. The God of peace make you perfect. And we look to him to perfect us in every good work to do his will. And the means through which this is accomplished is twofold. Jesus Christ working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. You could call that the subjective work of Christ because it is being done in you. And that helps to lead us to perfection. And the objective means through which this perfection is accomplished is given to us at the end of verse 20, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So you see the subjective and the objective elements here. Subjective element, Christ is working in you. The objective element, the blood of the everlasting covenant. And by combining the twofold means through which our perfection is accomplished, we could say that it's by the Spirit of Christ as he bears witness to our hearts concerning the blood of the everlasting covenant. 
so we could say from this benediction that on the basis of the blood of the everlasting covenant and by the means of Christ's Spirit testifying to the blood, we can expect to be perfected in every good work to do His will. We can and we will honor Him. We can and we will work that which is well-pleasing in His sight. We can and we will be at peace with Him. And you begin to see, then, I hope, the importance of the blood in this benediction. I think it would be true to say that the blood functions as the lens through which we must interpret the entire benediction of verses 20 and 21. It's as we remember the blood that we'll gain the assurance of God's peace and we'll find the motivation for God's service, and will keep our focus on God's glory. And so I want to draw your attention then to the focal point of this benediction this morning in order that we may draw from it the lessons that are based on the blood. Lessons based on the blood. I would give the sermon that title. I don't always have titles, but uh, this morning I do. Lessons based on the blood. And consider, first of all, that this benediction shows us that the blood bears witness to the covenant of grace. The blood bears witness to the covenant of grace. Notice the designation given to the blood in our text. It's called the blood of the everlasting covenant. The blood of the everlasting covenant. That's really a very rich statement when you think of it. We could park there for a long time, I suppose. And that statement indicates to us very plainly that the blood of Christ, in order to be understood and appreciated, must be viewed in the broader context of an everlasting covenant, or what is sometimes referred to as a covenant of grace. Some would call it the covenant of redemption. I think the meaning is the same. And the phrase everlasting covenant, okay, we're dealing with something now that transcends time. When we deal with an everlasting covenant, we're being taken back to eternity past. Okay? It brings us into what you could conceive as the council of the persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, before the world was even created, or before man had fallen into sin. The entire Trinity is engaged in negotiating, if you will, working out between them in that council, this everlasting covenant. The Father can be viewed as the primary planner of the covenant, the Son agreeing to be the executor of the covenant, accomplishing the covenant, and the Spirit agreeing to apply the accomplished work of Christ to those given to the Son by the Father. It is in connection, then, with the blood of the everlasting covenant that we find 
an appropriate designation that's given to Christ in the book of Revelation. This is Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, where Christ is referred to as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You ever stopped and thought about what that means? The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does such a designation tell us that before the problem of sin ever infected this world and brought this world and the inhabitants of it under the curse of God's wrath, the solution to the problem was already in place. Christ, the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now I want you to see from this epistle to the Hebrews the oneness or the unity that exists between the Son and the people given to him in that everlasting covenant of redemption. This covenant oneness is essential for the believer to understand and appreciate. Listen to these words now from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, where the author writes, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Now he that sanctifieth is God, you could say is Christ, or I suppose you could say the Spirit of Christ as well. He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified, that would be you, that would be me, that would be believers, they are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Those verses are quotations from the Old Testament. The author of this epistle makes great use of the Old Testament. And he is taking now quotations from the Old Testament that serve to prove to us the doctrine of the unity between Christ and his people. Interesting to note in this letter to the Hebrews, the teaching on how essential it was for the Son of God to become the Son of Man. The Son of God, a reference to his deity, Son of Man, a reference to his humanity, I might add a reference to his exalted state in his humanity, but his humanity nonetheless. And in chapter 2 and verse 14, listen to what it says. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Because you and I are flesh and blood, if he would join in union with us, bring us into union with himself, become our representative, our federal head, as it were, he must take to himself flesh and blood. He could not represent us without becoming one of us and one with us. And both are important. He must not only become a man, but he must become what we could call the legal representative of all those given to him. Hebrews 2, verse 17. 
Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Underscore that uh, phrase, it behooved him. It's a little bit of a King James phrase, I suppose you could call it. It could read, he was obligated to become like his brothers. Priests, you see, had to be called of God and they had to be taken from among men. Chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. A priest had to be a man. You see clearly from that verse. He had to be a man that he might represent men in things pertaining to God. What I want to stress this morning, however, is the truth of our covenant oneness with Christ. We are called upon to remember that covenant oneness when we partake of the bread. We're reminded in that bread that Christ became a man that the Son of God took to himself flesh. But we have to go a step further and recognize that becoming a man, he did so in order to become the legal representative, or as some might refer to it, the federal head of those that were given to him in that everlasting covenant. So this phrase in our text, the everlasting covenant, It takes us back into eternity past, and it presents to us the framework in which redemption must be understood. It is on account of the everlasting covenant that Christ became a man and took up the role of being our great high priest. But not only does the phrase everlasting covenant take us into eternity past, but it also carries us forward beyond time to our future blessedness. The blessings, you see, that are gained by the blood of the everlasting covenant are durable blessings. They never expire. They never wear out. They are not to be compared to the treasures of this world that are subject to the corruption of moth and rust. And if you look in verse 14, in chapter 13, you see clearly what the outlook of the author is. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. The author of this epistle is not looking to anything in this city, however grand it may appear. We look for a city to come, okay? And so we see in Revelation chapter 5 that the very thing that will forever be remembered in heaven is the same thing that we're called on to remember now. There's a sense in which we join the worship in heaven around this table. And it is our present blessing to say in commemoration of Christ the same thing that the saints of heaven proclaim In Revelation 5 and verse 12, 
Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We're given a glimpse, aren't we, in Revelation 5 as to what worship looks like in heaven and we have the liberty of worshiping Christ the same way here, especially around his table as we ascribe to him his worth. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So the blood bears witness to the covenant of grace. Indeed, the blood is at the heart of the covenant of grace. And because Christ's blood has been shed, the benefits of that everlasting covenant which includes such things as forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life and a home in heaven, these things have been made sure. Most gladly then and most reverently do we remember the blood of the everlasting covenant. But would you consider with me next that not only does the blood bear witness to that everlasting covenant, but in close connection with that point, secondly, the blood makes the way for our peace with God. The blood makes the way for our peace with God. Would you notice the designation that is given to God at the beginning of this benediction in verse 20? Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Note that phrase, the God of peace. This is a designation that can be assigned to God only on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Apart from the blood of the covenant, there could be no peace with God. We could not say where our experience and relationship to God was concerned that he was a God of peace. Apart from the blood, you see, we are at enmity with God. We are by nature children deserving wrath. We are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to God, not to mention rebels against him by our sins as we, by our sins, declare war against him. You ever thought about that when you sin? There is a sense in which you're declaring war against God. But the blood of the everlasting covenant has secured our peace. And it's here especially that we must come to realize and appreciate the covenant oneness of Christ with his people. There are those, you see, who recognize Christ as a substitute, but they fail to see him as their federal head. And the failure to see him this way and to see him only as a substitute robs the believer in Christ of the peace that ought to be his portion. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that the notion that Christ is only a substitute and not the legal representative of his people will not bear witness to the believer's conscience that justice has been satisfied. He may draw the wrong conclusion 
that justice has only been evaded. If you'll pardon me and bear with me now in what may be considered by some to be a somewhat crude illustration, I think I can show you exactly what I mean. And I call this a crude illustration because I have to go back in my memory, and this is not something that I generally do, but I'm doing it now. I'm going back in my memory to a movie that I saw several years ago before I was saved when I still made up my practice to go to movies. There's a scene in the movie The Godfather, mafia-themed movie, where the youngest son of a mobster's family is called upon to commit a murder. An arrangement is made where he meets his victim in a restaurant. He excuses himself at some point to go to the restroom where a gun has been hidden for him to use in this murder. He takes the gun, he commits the crime, and then he must flee from the scene. Indeed, he must flee from the country in order to avoid prosecution for his crime. Well, sometime later in the course of the story, an opportunity presents itself for bringing the mobster's youngest son back to his country. Another mobster's son, you see, has been arrested and prosecuted and sentenced to death for crimes that earned him the death penalty. And so the head of one mobster family negotiates with the head of the other mobster family to have his son on death row confess the crime for which the son of the other mobster had to flee the country. He's going to be executed anyway. Why don't you have him admit to this crime even though he didn't commit it? Was the negotiation. And the deal is made. And the mobster's son on death row, in addition to dying for his own crimes, now he also dies for the crime of the other mobster's son, thus clearing the way for his son to return home. It's a clear example of substitution, isn't it? But is it an, is it an example of justice satisfied? Is it not rather an example of a clever evasion of justice. This is one of the things that has led some scoffers and critics of Christianity to treat our religion with contempt. How can you declare that justice is satisfied when all that's happened is that an innocent man has died and the guilty go free? How can it be fair that the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to the human race when such a sin was committed before any of us were even born? You have no conscious recollection of that sin. You have no actual participation in that sin. How can the guilt of Adam's sin be imputed to you? And the answer is that Adam was the federal head of the human race. Such was the unity between the first man and those he represented that his action counted for theirs. And he was given every advantage. He was created very good. 
He lived in an environment that was very good. How he could sin in that kind of setup is indeed a great mystery, but the fact that he sinned is indisputable, and the fact that in the covenant of works he stood as the representative of the whole human race is indisputable. I remember I've done this a couple of times when I preached at the Wheeler Mission in days gone by, and I explain, or I at least try to explain all this to them, uh, Adam represented you, he failed, therefore you're condemned for his sin because he acted in the capacity of your representative. And if that bothers you, I have good news for you. Another representative is available. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is not merely a substitute. He is the federal head or the legal representative for all those he represents, and that would be believers. And such is the covenant oneness between Christ and his people that his actions count for theirs and his death counts for theirs. So on the basis not merely of substitution, there is obviously a substitution element to it, but there's much more than that. On the basis of covenant oneness, he is able to satisfy God's justice for us by his life and by his death. This covenant oneness is what bears witness to our conscience that it was fitting and it was in accordance with the righteousness of God that the head of a covenant people should fulfill the obligations for that people by his life and by his death. And this is why, and I don't know uh, how how far-reaching you would find this outside of Reformed circles, and even within some Reformed circles, there may be a denial of this, but the truth stands, Christ's life, as much as his death, counts for our salvation. And this is what enables us to say that being justified by faith, we have peace with God Romans 5 and verse 1, and this is what gives us confidence that our God is indeed the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. So the blood bears witness to the covenant of grace and the blood of the everlasting covenant makes the way for the peace of God to be our portion and to rule in our hearts We thank God this morning in our remembrance of Christ that he has satisfied the justice of God for us, and this enables us to know his peace. He operated, he lived on our behalf as our federal head. Would you consider finally that the blood of the everlasting covenant boosts our confidence in Christ's love? The blood boosts our confidence in his love. Would you notice how this benediction refers to Christ in verse 20? He is our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Our Lord Jesus. 
through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we can refer to him as ours, and he refers to us as his. And this is the blessing we gain through the blood. It brings to mind the fourth stanza of a hymn out of our hymn book that reads, His, forever only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light in gloom decline, but while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. He is revealed in our text then as one who is in our possession and one who possesses us. Notice also that he is that great shepherd of the sheep. I love that we remembered that in the singing of the 23rd Psalm this morning. It is in this connection as the great shepherd of the sheep that he said of himself in John 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. It is as our good shepherd that we can say, based on Psalm 23, that we shall not want or we shall not be lacking. That he leads us to green pastures beside still waters. That he restores our souls and leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It is in connection with the leading of our great shepherd that we can receive such a benediction that assures us that he will, uh, that, that we will be made perfect in every good work to do his will. It is the blood of the everlasting covenant, you see, that purges our works and applies to our works the merit of Christ's perfect life and death. I highlighted when we read it, verse 10, which says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. I believe that altar referred to is Christ himself. And it's when we offer our efforts and our worship to God on this altar of Christ that our works are perfected and accepted by God. All of this, of course, magnifies the love of Christ to our souls. It was in love that he entered into that everlasting covenant, knowing well in advance that this covenant would call for the shedding of his blood. I'm reminded of his meeting with those disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, following his resurrection. It was at that time, you may recall, that we read, beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, verse 27. And I find it interesting that this exposition of the scriptures by Christ followed his statement from verse 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And in connection with the sufferings of Christ and his entrance into glory, he expounds to them the scriptures. 
which suggests then, doesn't it, that if you're looking for a theme to stamp over your entire Bible, it would be the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. Christ expounded all the scriptures focusing on that theme. It indicates plainly that his sufferings and the shedding of his blood was in connection with the everlasting covenant of grace. What great love then that Christ would enter into such a covenant with his Father. What great love that Christ would agree to become our covenant head and to become one of us and one with us. I hope that as you remember him this day, that his peace will fill and thrill your heart. I hope that you'll come away with great assurance that just as certainly as Christ is with you and for you, you can be sure that he has led you each step of the way and that he'll continue to do so. How can he fail to do so when he is that great shepherd of the sheep? And when he condescends to be owned by his people in such a way that we can call him our Lord Jesus. I hope that as you remember him today, you'll draw motivation from the blood of the everlasting covenant to strive to do that which is well-pleasing in his sight, and that you'll make it your aim to affirm what this benediction affirms when it says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we do ask of thee, dear Lord, to draw near to us and to bless us in our remembrance of thee. We thank thee, Lord, for this statement in thy word that makes mention of the blood of the everlasting covenant. We thank thee that thy word takes us back before time even began and opens the door and enables us to behold the counsel of the Holy Trinity, mapping out the plan of redemption, assigning to the Son his role to execute that plan, by becoming the legal representative of all those that would put their faith in him. And we thank thee, Lord, that you executed that plan perfectly by your sinless life and by your atoning death. And we bless thee, Holy Spirit of God, for making us know who Christ is and what Christ has done. It wouldn't have mattered to us apart from thy powerful work on our hearts. So, Lord, bless us now, even as we think on the blood of the everlasting covenant in partaking of these elements. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.